0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Conversations at the Perimeter. I'm Lauren, and I'm here as always with Colin. Hello. In this episode, we're sharing our conversation with Savis Demopoulos. Savis is a faculty member at Stanford University in California, and he's the Coral Holdings Archimedes Visiting Chair here at Perimeter Institute. He's a renowned particle physicist whose career spans over four decades.
1: So I've been wanting to have Savas as a guest on this podcast ever since we first launched it. So I was thrilled that we made this happen. I first met Savas nearly 10 years ago during one of his annual visits to Perimeter, and I was immediately struck by his kindness and his wisdom and really by his undiminished passion after all these years for exploring the most puzzling mysteries in the universe.
0: In this conversation, he shares his thoughts on fundamental, huge open questions like, why is gravity so weak?
1: Why is the universe so big?
0: And is there a multiverse? And he also talks about how he remains motivated to search for answers to such huge puzzles.
1: Savis was also one of the scientists featured prominently in the award-winning 2013 documentary Particle Fever about the hunt for the Higgs boson at the LHC, CERN's Large Hadron Collider. Savis tells us some history of collider physics, and he explains how a renaissance in small-scale experiments could reshape how physics is done in the generation between the LHC and the next big super collider. We were fascinated by this conversation, and we're pretty sure that you will be too. So let's step inside the perimeter with Savas Demopoulos. Savis, thank you so much for joining us. I've been looking forward to chatting with you for a long time now.
2: My pleasure.
1: It's been a bit of a break for you coming to Perimeter because of the pandemic, but we're glad to have you back. And uh, I was looking at your Stanford webpage the other day, and it says that your job is to search for answers to the biggest mysteries in the universe. That's about the biggest job description. Can you tell us, what does that mean? What do you do for a
2: living? I assure you, the job description is big, but it is not matched by salary. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> it would have to be an astronomical salary. <laughs> it,
2: it, it would have, but I'm happy because my main reward is that I'm given the time to just think about the universe. Then, and that's the reward enough for me.
1: So what are the big questions about the universe that are driving you these days?
2: Yeah, so there are several, but I, I want to give you some big principles that guide the questions that we are asking. One of the big principles is what's called naturalness. And uh, the idea of naturalness actually is uh, in all of science. In the case of physics, naturalness has to do with trying to understand very large numbers. For example, if you take the size of the universe and you compare it with the size of an atomic nucleus, you get an enormous number. 10 to the 40 which is uh, you know one with 40 decimals uh, next to it with such enormous numbers it's natural to ask how come the fundamental particles of the theory are so much smaller than the universe or conversely why is the universe so big you can ask it in many different ways but one of the ways it's asked it's called the cosmological constant problem Another question is, why is gravity so weak? So, for example, what I mean by the weakness of gravity, when I lift this glass of water, the electrical forces from my fingers to the glass are large enough to compensate or to overcome the gravitational attraction of the entire planet Earth. And if you think about it, uh, this is amazing. The entire planet Earth is enormous compared to my fingers, Mm -hmm. yet I'm able to overcome the gravity of the Earth with the electrical forces or atomic forces that my fingers exert on the glass. So the only reason why this is possible is because the intrinsic strength of electrical forces or atomic forces is far, far bigger than the strength of gravity. uh, Again, it's about 40 orders of magnitude, one with 40 zeros bigger. That is called the hierarchy problem. And these questions, the enormity of the universe and the weakness of gravity have been driving, in in some ways, theoretical thinking for the last 40-some years. And much of the theoretical community in My field, which is called high energy physics, has been driven by these uh, questions. And one of these questions, the so-called hierarchy problem, has had some possible answers. Mm -hmm. And uh, much of what many people did, including myself, over the last 40 years was to search for answers to this question, the weakness of gravity. Why is gravity so much weaker than electricity? Or why is gravity so much weaker than all the other forces of nature? To answer these questions, we came up with theoretical ideas. There is three or four, depending on how you count. But the simplest one to describe in words and with pictures is the idea of large extra dimensions, which uh, was proposed back in 1998 by myself and a couple of collaborators, Nima Arkani, Hamed, and Giyad Vali. The basic idea of that framework is that gravity, in contrast to the other forces of nature, lives in more than three dimensions. As a result, it spreads inside a space bigger than three dimensions, maybe hmm. four, maybe five, maybe six, et cetera, dimensions. And in so doing... It dilutes its strength. It spreads itself thin, in a sense.
1: So gravity is having an influence in the dimensions we might not experience
2: ourselves? Exactly right. Yeah. At least not directly. The picture there can be described as follows. Imagine the surface of this table that represents our universe. By our universe, I mean the three-dimensional space of our universe. Okay. So clearly this is not a precise The surface of the table has two dimensions. Our universe has three dimensions. But nevertheless, imagine the surface represents our universe. So all ordinary forces, which is electricity, magnetism, the so-called strong interactions, which keep an atomic nucleus together, or the weak interactions, which are responsible for radioactivity, all of the other forces of nature stay in this three-dimensional space, are confined to this table. Whereas gravity can spread also perpendicularly to the table, in these extra dimensions that we usually call height. So because gravity spreads in more dimensions, it dilutes its intrinsic strength. It's like when a river, which moves, let's say, in one direction, in one dimension, spreads itself into several tributaries, it Mm -hmm. loses its strength. So it is with gravity that uh, this extra-dimensional space dilutes its strength. And this idea received tremendous attention both theoretically and observationally. The the big experiment that we call the Large Hadron Collider at uh, CERN in Geneva is looking for signatures of these theories. And I can describe to you a couple of ways you can look for this that follow from this picture of you know the table representing our three-dimensional universe and the vertical direction Mm -hmm. is the extra dimension so one test is the following of this hypothesis imagine the surface which represents our universe is like a pool table the surface of the pool table represents our three dimensions billiard balls on the pool table, represent elementary particles like the proton or the electron, etc. Now, normally, when we play with billiard balls, you know, the billiard balls collide. And when they collide, of course, they they still stay in two dimensions. They stay in ordinary space. But the sound that the collision creates propagates also in the third dimension, inside Mm -hmm. the space of the extra dimensions. So even if we were not looking at the extra dimensions, just by listening to the sound that the collision of the billiard balls produces, we could infer about, well, what happened, the collision and the fact that some sound or was uh, emitted inside the third dimension, so we could infer about the presence of the extra dimensions. So LHC is looking for the analog of that, you collide two elementary particles, which in that case is protons, and if there are extra dimensions, some of the energy of this collision may manifest itself by particles that come into the extra dimensions. So, some of the energy that was in our universe, if you wish, in our what we thought was three dimensional universe, will be missing before the collision and after some of the energy has been carried out in a new space that we are normally not aware of. This is called the missing energy signature. You collide two particles or two billiard balls and there is some energy missing because it went to new particles or to the sound waves in the case of the billiard ball. And by looking very carefully at energy imbalance before the collision and after the collision, you can look for the space of extra dimensions.
0: Can you say a little bit more about where the seed of this idea comes from? Because as you're saying, there are some experimental signatures that you can look for. But is that something that you come up with after the fact? Or is it these experimental signatures that inspired you to look for a theory in higher dimensions in the first place?
2: Well, that's a very interesting question. Because in some sense, for the case of extra dimensions, both played their role. I mean, historically... I was made aware by talking to some of my experimental colleagues at Stanford that gravity has been tested to only distances of about, back then it was about a centimeter. This means Newton's law of gravitation, that the force between two particles is, was like the inverse square law, had only been tested down to a distance of a little less than a centimeter. And this was back in 1990. So, I was astonished to hear that because when I was an undergraduate in my lab, we tested Newton's law to a distance which was maybe 15, 20 centimeters, not much larger Mm -hmm. than the one centimeter or so. The original measurement was done 200 years ago. How come? So, that immediately planted to me the seed of an idea that I should be brave about creating theories where the law of gravity is different. at yeah, Distances below a centimeter Newton's, what's called the inverse square law, is uh, not obeyed at shorter distances. So that sort of opened the door for me that I could contemplate such possibility without immediately being disproven by non-experimental facts. The other thing, theory also played a role in the sense that I was looking for an explanation of the weakness of gravity. However, for several years, you know, I didn't make the connection between those two. In fact, I wrote papers proposing new particles that could cause deviations from Newton's law of attraction, Of, uh, but without any reference to extra dimensions. And then finally, after a few years, my colleagues and I started making the connection, and that's how the theory of large extra dimensions was proposed. In fact, your question also is related to the second test of these theories. Namely, you can study Newton's law at very short distances. So when I started talking about this possibility in 1990, several physicists, in particular colleagues of mine at Stanford, were inspired, experimental colleagues, and we started talking about them testing Newton's law. We spoke for, for a long time, maybe a couple of years, with a, a friend of mine, Aaron Kapitulnik, and we are good friends. So we have dinners together and we drink good wine together. So it was at that setting that we started talking about these very wild and speculative ideas. And he decided to test them. And he and, and several other people around the world started looking. And today, the force of gravity the Newton's inverse square law has been tested down to a distance of about 100 microns, so far smaller than a centimeter, which used to be the case. And now there is enormous amount of effort to test it at shorter and shorter distances. Now, what does this have to do with extra dimensions? Well, if if there is extra dimensions, the so-called inverse square law will be modified. For example, if instead of three spatial dimensions, you have a fourth, the inverse square law will become the inverse cube law. And if it's two dimensions, it will be the inverse fourth power law, etc. So that's what these experimentalists are looking for, a deviation from one over distance squared, to one over distance cube, or fourth, etc. And clearly no such deviation has been seen, but People are looking at shorter and shorter distances now. And in in fact, there was a very nice workshop, or actually it was a school last week where many of these top experimentalists were giving lectures to students from all over the world and to each other. Actually, there were many professors, experiment and theory about the new frontiers, how to look for such new dimensions. And uh, this is a very nice story Because it shows you how a theoretical idea that can be described without too much mathematics can, in fact, connect with experiment. Now, part of the reason for that is 30, 40 years ago, it would be incredible for anyone to propose looking for such small forces at, uh, let's say, below... 100 microns, that such new forces has been looked for down to distance of 40 microns. To give you an idea, 100 microns is smaller than the width of human hair. So it's uh, incredible that you can even conduct an experiment, let alone a precise experiment that will measure the force between two uh, not visible particles to, to such a precision. And so... Why was this possible? Definitely, it wasn't possible 50 years ago. Microtechnology, in other words, there has been a driving force in part because of applications to manipulate things at extremely short distances. And uh, over the last several decades, experimental physicists have been at the forefront of this manipulation of the very small. When they started doing that, their objective was not to test gravity. I don't think there would be enough money uh, funding such an effort from the physics of 40, 50 years ago. You know, usually physicists like to emphasize how physics makes our lives better. We have all of technology, uh, electricity, and how useful quantum mechanics has been, lasers, etc. But there is also, of course, the converse where technology allows physics to progress. And these things go hand in hand. So when I started to think about this in the 1990s and started talking to my good experimental friends, a partly motivated for social reasons to have a good time on the weekends, etc., Then I realized, oh my God, these people are amazing. I couldn't believe it. They can look at a hundred microns, smaller than the width of a human hair, Yeah, just by all means do it. So they went from a centimeter, which you can visualize, to extremely small distances, and they'll they'll be progressing further. I actually think this paradigm sort of summarizes much of, I mean, this is sort of at the highest level. It summarizes, though, the interplay between theoretical ideas and technology and experimental Mm -hmm. progress and the back and forth. You mentioned a few minutes ago the term naturalness, which is not one that I've come across
1: very often. Can you explain how that sort of fits into this picture?
2: Yeah, so the way it fits into the picture, I can explain in the context of the hierarchy problem. So let's back up. So the hierarchy problem was the problem of understanding why gravity is so weak. So the connection is if there are extra dimensions of space in which... All elementary particles that we know of, electrons, protons, all the forces, the other forces we know, electricity, magnetism, etc., are constrained to this three-dimensional space. This three-dimensional space we call our universe. Now, if gravity is not constrained to this three-dimensional space, but it spreads into the extra dimensions, then it will dilute its strength and it will become weaker. Now, how weak? Well, it depends on the size of the extra dimensions the bigger the size of the extra dimensions or the more extra dimensions you have, the more rapidly you dilute the strength of gravity. So, in fact, you can infer some relation between the size of the extra dimensions and the weakness of gravity. So, that's the connection. Gravity is weak because there is a large amount of space in extra dimensions inside which gravity dilutes its strength. That's the connection. So, what used to be an, you know, 40 decimals now translates to you know, how many extra dimensions you have and how big they are. They cannot be ultra small, but they can be even as small as 10 microns, 100 microns, and still explain the dilution or the weakness of, of gravity. So naturalness came because you transcribe the problem, which looked like a 40 decimal problem, to some geometric problem that you can imagine solving. So that's an example of an approach to the natural. Now, there are. I don't want to get, because I'm not, it's not my field, but in other fields, for example, in biology, in some sense, Darwin's theory made many of the biological wonders. So what seems unimaginably complicated, like a human being, where millions of things have to work synchronously, very precisely, can think the heart, the mind, everything. This become a natural consequence of what's called evolution. Mm-hmm. Now, not everybody buys that, but scientifically, I think there is no question that that's a valid theory. So that's another example where you take an incredible mystery, you look at it from a different perspective where this mystery looks more mm-hmm. natural. In physics, it usually has to do with explaining big numbers numbers that are about are like one or ten or a tenth, we feel ah oh, okay, well, such and such is about as big as such and such. okay. But when you have disparities of many, many, many orders of magnitude, they beg for an explanation. And the other example of this is uh, the... Enormity of the universe, or the so-called cosmological constant problem—that's <laughs> a question I've been dying to ask. Uh, yes, please,
1: physicists. Is, why is the universe so big?
2: So the universe, why it's so big? First of all, how big it is. As we were saying before, if you compare it to the size of an atomic nucleus, it's again about forty orders of magnitude bigger than the size of an atomic mm. uh, nucleus. Again, it begs for a mystery. You start, if you wish, with a theory that has nuclei and electrons and atoms, and all of a sudden you have this enormous universe that supposedly follows from the same equations that have this tiny nuclei, etc. How can this be? This problem has many, many facets, and I cannot do justice to it. I'll just tell you that there is no solution to this problem. At least there is no. Solution within the usual framework that science proceeds, where you write down the laws of nature, which means some equations that dictate how the universe works, and then you can derive that, oh, therefore the universe is large. There is no mathematical theory of this. There is a very controversial approach to this problem, which was proposed. Back in 1987, by more than one person, but in particular, a very well-known physicist called Steven Weinberg, who just passed over a year ago, the basic idea there is embedded in what's called the idea of the multiverse. But before I take you back to what's the multiverse, I want to draw an analog. And this goes back again to some ancient Greek physicist called Aristarchos. Aristarchus was one of the first people that believed there were many, many solar systems. That was not a very popular idea either at the time of Aristarchus or even in 1600 when what we call modern science emerged. Most people, even by 1600, believed that there was only one solar system. That was it. So then in the context of this, many mysteries appear. If you believe there is one solar system, it looks amazing that that solar system, in particular the planet Earth and the sun, the distance between the Earth and the sun, were made just perfectly to allow the conditions on Earth to be friendly to our existence. For example, if we were a few percent closer, a few percent further than uh, the sun, The Earth would either boil or freeze, and we wouldn't be around. The chemical compounds that we see on Earth are just exactly what we need to exist and to flourish, etc. So it looks like again there is some, you know, higher intelligence that really cares for us. uh, Turning uh, a knob until they just right. Turning the knob (laughs) exactly right. Okay. Oh, we don't have Sava, so let me go back. (laughs) (laughs) So. It looks like a miracle in in many ways, uh, considering how much it takes to have life. And this point of view is very popular. It was obviously also popular with the church. There is some deity that really cares. That's why everything was made perfectly for our existence, etc. Then in in 1600, there was a priest called Giordano Bruno from Italy who really believed in Ar- Aristarchus's ideas. And he started discussing them in public. And eventually, he was burned at the stake for his beliefs. He was burned at the stake in 600. Galileo was almost burned at the stake around 1630s. Galileo died in 1642, and Newton was born in 1642. So that was really the beginning of the Renaissance of science so many ideas, in many ways, they went back to what Arist- Aristarchus actually could argue that the lights that we see in the sky are actually solar systems. And because they are so far, you can't tell that they are moving, but they are moving, etc. So they started going back. And then Galileo, of course, invented or co-invented the telescope. And people started looking at planets which had moons around them. And then they said, okay it looks like things like our solar system actually are probably out there and they started making observations. So modern, modern science. And now, of course, if you ask anybody, yeah, of course, there is many solar systems. In fact, if you take the number of galaxies, there is about 100 billion galaxies. And each one has about 100 billion stars. 10 to the 22 stars, again, And one with 22 zeros, stars in the universe. And most stars have planets. We are not unique. So the chances that when you have such a huge number of stars, that chances that in some of them, there are friendly conditions that allow life like our own or maybe quite different than our own to exist is extremely likely. It hasn't been proven because we haven't, made an observation, it hasn't been proven yet. But I think most scientists believe that it's very likely that conditions similar to our own or, or even different have allowed the evolution of intelligence and life in other places. So notice what happened, that what used to be unnatural or required great care, namely the, the occurrence of life in the universe, is by changing your perspective and, of course, encouraged by observations, it became something not just palatable but very likely. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of how a change of perspective makes something, convert something that looks miraculous to something that looks natural.
1: That's all in, uh, within our own known universe, right?
2: Exactly. Okay. So now we're taking the next step. Okay. So we go back. To why is our universe so large? Now, this is correlated with, as I said, what's called the cosmological constant problem. The cosmological constant is essentially the energy density that is in the vacuum of the universe. This is an energy density that we are not aware of, but in principle it's there, and in fact, if it was there, there are measurable consequences. The energy of the vacuum. If you ask any theorist, you know, what would you think the energy of the vacuum is, they would pull out pencil and paper and say, oh, it's probably this number. And the number that they would get is 120 orders of magnitude larger than what it actually is. Yeah. And what it actually is is not zero. It has been measured back in the 90s very precisely by Astrophysicists and cosmologists, because it has consequences on how the universe expands or if it expands or contracts, how rapidly. So, with cosmological observation, looking at how far away objects like supernovae recede from us, how rapidly they move away from us, you can tell if there was a cosmological constant or not. And it's 120 orders of magnitude smaller. Than it should have been by just taking what you know in your theory and computing. So very much like and very closely related to the fact that the size of the universe is forty orders of magnitude bigger than the size of an atomic uh, nucleus. So they're very closely connected problems. And finally, a few physicists and uh, together with Steven Weinberg said there is many, many universes. All of these universes have different value of the cosmological constant. Some are big, some are small, etc. When you have cosmological constant, that affects how the universe expands. So if you have too much, it expands very rapidly. So if you have small enough, then it expands slowly enough to allow for galaxies to form. You know, our planetary system belongs to a galaxy and stars and their planets are in galaxies. So galaxies are very important because they are relatively dense structures that allow stars to form. And stars are important because there are planets around stars and that's where life forms. Uh, Life benefits from having the heat of the stars provide energy. So it's important for life. Galaxies are important for life because we live on planets. Planets are near the sun. They draw energy and stars, like our own sun, belong to galaxies. So if the cosmological constant was any bigger than it is, then galaxies wouldn't form. So we wouldn't have stars. We wouldn't have planets. We wouldn't have uh, uh, life. So to do that... Weinberg had to postulate the existence of many 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 universes and again the, the number of these universes is enormous that you need because the cosmological constant is so much smaller than its natural value which would have been 120 orders of magnitude bigger so this was the proposal in 87 and in fact using this idea he derived a prediction for how big the cosmological constant should be. Because if it's any bigger than that, galaxies cannot form. But there is no reason why it should be smaller than the maximum it could be to allow for our existence. So he made the prediction in '87, and the prediction sure enough was confirmed within a factor of uh, an order of magnitude, which is not considering the, the range of the prediction that it Predicts a quantity that is off by 120 or orders of magnitude. Predicted something to within a factor of 10, and it turned out to be what the cosmological constant. So it looks like our universe is tuned. You know, it doesn't have as big a, a, a cosmological constant as it could because it would be crazy. The universe would be expanding at an enormous speed. We wouldn't. Not even atoms would form, not, let mm-hmm. alone galaxies and stars, etc. So it's not as big as it could be. It's smaller and smaller and smaller. It's far smaller. It's 120 orders of mind. Is smaller. But that's when you stop. The moment it's 120 orders of mind smaller, you form life and that's when you stop. So in fact, he proposed it as a way to test his theory just about 10 years before it was uh, tested. Because the idea was exceedingly unpopular in 1987. In fact, I, I remember because I was visiting him <laughs> It was October 19th of 1987, because the same day I was visiting him, there was a big stock market crash. And I was giving a talk (laughs) at the University of Texas, where he was. So he showed me his theory, and I said, of course, I was very polite, oh, interesting, etc. But I said, oh, the old man has completely lost it my definition of old back then i think he was like 56 <laughs> or 50 yeah he was in fact yeah 55 back then old by my then standards and i think he's he was ultra young but uh, he tells me this thing many universes my head is spinning and i say oh the I understand, you know, he's about to die pretty soon. He wants these big questions answered. (laughs) And uh, what can you do? Yes, people (laughs) lie. And I I wasn't alone. I think everybody thought, hey, Weinberg has lost it. (laughs) I mean, he was viewed until the end of his life as, you know, a major, if not the major physicist uh, of his time. So he seems to have been right at least With a numerical prediction, whether the multiverse exists is exceedingly controversial for several reasons. One is the number of universes you need to explain this cosmological constant is enormous. Now we are talking about really enormous, like 10 to the 120, 10 to the (laughs) 130 universes. You know, one with 120. or This is sort of the minimum number you need to begin to explain the cosmological. This sounds and what, like the
1: opposite of naturalness what you exactly were so in
2: a sense the the complaint is my god you transcribe the problem to a different large number and uh, unless you have a sort of theory how are so many universes created you haven't made progress it's a, it's a great point that's one of the reasons and then the controversy got even stronger because there is a a, a very speculative again controversial theory called string Theory which turns out it can predict the existence of so many universes. However, it's already a controversial theory, the fact that... So it's very much an open question, and the question in the end in science are not decided by conversation or writing down formulae or the prestige of the person who made the proposal, whether they have a Nobel Prize or not. These don't count for anything. It has to be experiment in the end. I mean, the one piece of experimental evidence for Weinberg's multiverse was, uh, of course, the fact that the cosmological constant was measured to be what he had predicted. But you need more than that in science, especially with such big ideas. So there are some proposals on how to test this idea. One is called split supersymmetry that I I was uh, involved with. However, even if you see split supersymmetry, I I don't think it will be enough to sort of prove the multiverse. You need many more data. And the problem is the idea, it's not obvious what to go and measure. For example, when uh, uh, Aristarchos and Giordano Bruno, et cetera, postulated the many solar systems hypothesis, multi-solar systems. Eventually, there was a discovery of the telescope, which allowed you to begin this path towards discovering that there is much more in the universe out there. Those sort of blinking lights are not there for decor. In fact, (laughs) they are a world like us. Many of them are whole galaxies, so they have 10 to the 11 stars. But there was a way to progress through experiment, through observation. And there is no clear path through experiment, through observation, to prove the multiverse so far. So I think it will remain controversial for, I would say, maybe decades, if I'm optimistic, if not hmm. uh, more than a century, which is a very long time scale. But uh, maybe I'll be proven wrong, maybe. There are other predictions, there is another idea which is called the Axiverse, I don't want to get into it, (laughs) there are other predictions of having many universes, Mm -hmm. Uh, in particular the Axiverse is the idea that if there are many universes, there are also many particles in our universe, that again, you know, the conference that we had last week here touched upon how you can go out to discover these many particles. So if you see many particles, you see split supersymmetry, maybe people will start believing. I'll be converted very rapidly because I'm psychologically prepared for wild ideas, and that's why I worked on trying to find... Uh, I mean, I was involved both with split supersymmetry and the axiverse ideas because yeah. I still want to see how you could test the existence of many universes. And
0: uh, So I really love this point you've raised a couple of times about how the types of questions we can hope to answer in our theories really depends on the technology that we have. And when I read about your work online, I've seen the line a few times that your career in particle physics spans four decades. So I would assume that the types of questions that you've been able to answer have evolved a lot throughout your career. So can you tell us a little bit about this and how the types of questions you've been able to study have changed with technology?
2: Yes, yes. I was trained in the late 70s as a particle physicist. Again, to give you a perspective, I'll sort of zoom out to tell you what, how particle physics started. So a key day in the history of science, a key year, is 1945. That's when the public and politicians and everybody realized that actually science has consequences. It can be used you know, in a bad or a good ways, But knowledge allows you to do things. So they started funding the science very heavily. And that led immediately to what we call big science. Big science means, for example, what are called colliders. Colliders are essentially you take two beams of particles, you know, one from the left and one from the right, and you collide them and you see what comes out. And the more the energy, the more the, the faster the particles go towards each other, the more energy you have to produce new particles. By new, I mean things that we are not familiar with, like the electron or the proton. Are familiar particles? We know them from because we are made out of nuclei and, and electrons. New particles, I mean things that live for, for a very the briefest amount of time. You create them and then they decay into other particles, familiar particles.
1: Are these collisions that happen in nature as well, or are you creating things that only exist
2: in the lab? They can happen both in nature and the lab. In nature, they happen very far away from. You need very violent conditions. They, or they happen in... Uh, what are called cosmic rays, very energetic particles that have been accelerated somewhere in the universe and they come towards us. Not by intelligent life, but by you know, astrophysical processes. But we study them on Earth because you need a lot of collisions to be able to study what you produce. And in the universe, definitely in our location, there is not a lot of con- collisions. You have an occasional cosmic ray come and hit, but it will hit something in the atmosphere, you won't know it. But they can happen also naturally. So you have these collisions. You study the decay, the product of these collisions. And that's how you find out, in some sense, new particles. Sometimes you find out what something is made out of. If you collide nuclei or, you know, an electron and a nucleus, you find out what's inside the nucleus. Sometimes you produce a new particle... That uh, was not inside, but the, the energy that you produced allowed you to, to create new particles, etc. That's called the colliders. Colliders are very big projects. An example is the CERN collider, the most recent one in uh, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, and they they involve you know hundreds of people now working for decades. I mean, it started out working for years now. The colliders have been getting bigger and bigger. To, to give you an idea, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN has a circumference of 26 or so kilometers. It's about a couple of hundred meters underground. And it involves magnets going all around these 26 kilometers. And these magnets are very important because they navigate the protons that are accelerated to go on a very precise trajectories, again, within microns things have to be exactly where they are within tiny, tiny distance, or else they will miss each other. They won't collide. Mm -hmm. So half the protons go clockwise, the other half counterclockwise, and then magnets navigate them, and eventually they collide in four different spots where you have detectors. They are Mm -hmm. huge, you know, like a five-story building that are instrumented with very sophisticated machines, versions of the human eye. You know, you can see what happens, you can see what particles you produced, and uh, just like the eye has to go to connect to the brain, so there is then cables that take these events, they analyze them, computers, and then they tell you, okay, you produced it. It's beyond my imagination that humans have been able to do such complicated things. It all started with the willingness to support science that was uh, started in 1945. In the beginning, colliders would take a few months to a few years to be built, only a fraction of the cost that they are now. Now they have reached the point, for example, the Large Hadron Collider is about a billion per year to run, and it was, so it was like 10 billion to build. It's a big project and the money is not the main problem. The problem is that it takes time and expertise to build it, to have twenty seven kilometers worth of magnets. Mm-hmm. These are huge magnets. Mm-hmm. It's, they have to be ultra cold and they have it's a miracle that you can have control to this level. It's even as a European for me, it's even more of a miracle. It was created, in a sense, as a result of the Second World War where European countries were fighting each other. At least that's how it started. And then the same European countries collaborated at this spectacularly precise accomplishment. Uh, one of the great accomplishments of, the, of, I think, humans to create this machine it worked so well. And we've learned so much from it and all the predecessors. Uh, LHC is only the, the last example in it. And there have been tens of colliders, um, you know, various sizes, et cetera, since then. So we've been on this large science road over 70 years. Now we've reached the point where the next collider, the next upgrade that will take us to even bigger energies, uh, may take, if we are lucky, 20 to 30 years to build.
0: And why is it that long? Is that because of the technology needed it, or the investment?
2: Or how big it has to be? <laughs> I, I think all of the above. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, plus, it takes time. Even if Bezos gives you all his money saying, okay, go back. Uh, the money would be plenty in his case. <laughs> However, it would still take a long time to assemble the, the people. And then the technology, even if the technology exists, because the technology does exist, if you make it long, ago, long enough, you can have enough magnets and enough to accelerate particles to very high energies, you know, the, the next energy frontier, 10 times bigger energy than the LHC. So the technology exists, but the time it would take, I would guess, at least 15 years, probably much more. Even with all the money, I think it would take a couple of decades. Well, this comes across in the movie
1: Particle Fever, the documentary that you're in, which is largely set at the Large Hadron Collider, because you personally had to wait how many years of your career for that to, to be completed and, and be brought online. That, that was a long wait for...
2: That was a long wait. By the way, I didn't think it was going to be a long way when I started. <laughs> you know, humans tend to be optimistic by nature. <laughs> That's why we've evolved so well. I can tell you an- anecdotally, In 1983, there was the first study group of what was then called the Superconducting Supercollider, which was a very similar collider, actually would have higher energy than the LHC that was going to be built in the U.S., the SSC, Superconducting Supercollider. And the date that was discussed was, well, by 1990, We should be running. This was the first uh, study. So it took much longer. It wasn't even the SSC was canceled in 93 for political reasons. The moment a site was chosen, which was Texas, to build it, then the support from the rest of the states diminished. (laughs) And in the end, it was not built, which is is really a shame because it would be very good for the world to have two colliders in a competition and at any rate. So it took much longer. So I didn't think it would take from 83 until 2008 when it first started. So this timescale is seems to like it was getting longer. I mean, I anticipated this in the 90s. That's why I started thinking about small-scale experiments. I didn't anticipate exactly dates, but I said, well, there is a lot of technology happening so what can we do with it because i was learning these things from my friends that i have dinners and wine tasting etc so i could see that there was a whole other field of experimentation so that inspired me to start thinking about this and now it's a major it's a major part of what's happening because the next collider will take so many decades. Many people have started doing it, especially in the last five years. There has been what is called the, the golden age of small, you know, doing fundamental physics with small-scale experiments. So you don't have to wait three decades for a collider don't to have, be built? I think colliders are still very important. You are not looking for exactly the same physics if you do small-scale, high-precision experiments and collider experiments. Collider experiments, you eventually produce new particles. When you produce them, even though they live for a very short time, you can study them. You can see what are their decay products. And from there, you learn a lot. You learn all there is to know about their fundamental properties, their mass, their electric charge, and their what's called their spin, and how they couple to other particles. You learn a lot in detail. And the moment you've produced a particle, The signature of that is fairly clean. With small-scale experiments, the discoveries are more indirect. You see a new effect, and then you have to infer from that effect what it is that produced this effect. And it Mm -hmm. could be the same particle that you would have discovered in a collider, but you'll see it more indirectly. So usually it takes more than one small-scale experiment to study, let's say, the same particle or the same phenomenon. Nevertheless, I think these are complementary. So there is a lot that can be done thanks to the amazing technological developments for what can be called the high precision frontier. So there is a lot that can be done. And now it is a golden era for this. Many experimentalists have turned their attention to this. Many of these people, what they were doing for technological purposes, and now they are doing it to make major new discoveries about the laws of nature new so it's very exciting i remember
1: in that documentary particle fever which is largely about the search for and discovery of the higgs boson the Mm -hmm. sort of the most famous outcome of the large hadron collider i've always wanted to ask you that movie it shows people packing an auditorium for the big announcement of the higgs boson and you couldn't get past security they locked you out what happened I was
2: late. So (laughs) what happened was I had several students and postdocs that went there early and they kept a seat. In fact, they showed in Particle Fever the empty seat Mm -hmm. for me. But even though there was a seat available, I I couldn't go in because there was a big backlog and they didn't. Anyway, (laughs) so I had to watch it from a TV outside. But you were
1: there at the LHC uh, at CERN when the discovery was announced. How did that
2: feel for you for that milestone? Oh, it it felt fantastic. You know, it's like when something amazing happens, you feel that you live in a dream. That's how it was. That was, by the way, in December of 2011, that actual first announcement. That was the incident that was shown. July 4th, 2012 was the official announcement. And uh, at the time of the official announcement, I was actually in Sandorini uh, on vacation looking at the announcement and, and, and some beautiful <laughs> views of the sea.
1: That sounds nice. It's better than
2: being locked out by security. <laughs> exactly. but, but the, 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 the <laughs> fir- I, I'm glad I was there, though, for the first announcement. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Scientists are like humans. (laughs) (laughs) So the moment you dream of something, it happens, you accomplish and say, okay, what's next? Very soon, uh, you get used. So now we are looking forward to seeing what may be beyond, what's called new physics, beyond what we call the standard model now. With the discovery of the Higgs marks the end of what we call the standard model, and we are now on, on a path to discover new particles. That's what we are looking forward
1: to. We have a student question submitted that's about the standard model by uh, Felicity. Maybe we could play that for you? Yeah, sure.
0: Hello, Savas. I'm Felicity in grade 8. What are the discrepancies in the standard model for physics and what makes them as such?
2: Okay, that's an interesting question. because <laughs> the, the, the word discrepancies suggest that there is something wrong with the standard model, that something doesn't work. That By doesn't work, I mean it's contradicted. The standard model makes a prediction that when you do experiment X, you'll find A, but you don't find A. When you do it, you find B. So there is no discrepancy of the standard model in that sense. If there was... It wouldn't be the standard model of particle physics. It would be a theory that has some problems. So there is no real discrepancy. The what I described to you, the hierarchy problem, the cosmological constant problem, are not logical contradictions with the standard model. In a sense, they are aesthetic criteria that, in the same theory, you have two numbers that differ by forty orders of magnitude. There must be a reason for it. The standard model is not fundamental enough to address these questions of why is the universe so much bigger than an atomic nucleus or why is gravity so much weaker than the other forces. It is essentially the naturalness criterion and aesthetic criteria.
1: I remember once you saying something like, the biggest mystery is that the universe is comprehensible to us
2: at all. That is, in a sense, a meta-question. It's almost in the realm of philosophy. Indeed, several big philosophers and physicists have said the same thing. In different ways that the most, uh, I forgot, maybe it was Einstein who said that the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. The fact that there is a language for the universe which is called mathematics, the fact that the universe obeys mathematical laws is just astonishing. What's called the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. In mathematics, you can ask a question and no matter how hard it is, if it's within the realm of mathematics and physics, and it may involve millions of steps, but you arrive at something that's true. Now it's very rare you start you have a starting point, some question, you and then a million steps low, uh, later, you arrive at a conclusion that's still true, because a million steps is a lot of steps, and all it takes is few missteps to be led to the wrong direction and mathematics that doesn't do that. If you ask the right question, I think it was Pythagoras who said that otheos ai geometry, which means. <laughs> in English, that God geometrizes everything. By Mm -hmm. geometry, he meant mathematics, that God speaks the language of mathematics, if Mm -hmm. you want a paraphrase. That's an incredible mystery. And the fact that mathematics is a precise language, like, you know, one plus one equals two. There is no if, but, approximate, (laughs) well... It's a matter of opinion, <laughs> and there is left-wingers and right-wingers. Yeah, that's fake news. Yeah, fake news. <laughs> there is no, and of course, that's an uh, exceedingly simple example, but with math, you can have very complicated examples that describe, you know, what happens uh, in a complicated situation in nature. The, you know, how the sun works and creates energy for us, and there is trillions of steps and to do, but before you figure out how the sun works, how come it produces all this energy, what will it do next, or the lo- the laws of gravity. You don't have to go... You know, Newton told us, gave us equations. You can use these equations to predict where any planet will be at any point in the future and where it has been any point in the past, you know, 10 billion years ago or 10 billion years from now. And you can tell exactly, you know, if you'll have an eclipse and what mm-hmm. it will be. So this power of extrapolation gives a, a new meaning to the concept of truth. That, uh, oh my God, this is real true. Mm-hmm. There is no fake stuff. <laughs> it's amazing that such a thing exists. And in fact, it's what drove me into physics, what I told you about Newton's equations. When I was, I think I was 13 years old, one of my classmates back in Greece told me that you know, there is these equations that do exactly what I told you. You can predict the position and speed of a planet at any point in the future, if you know it today or any point in the past. Impossible. <laughs> no way. It's so complicated. There are all these other planets, and there is, there is so much happening at the same time. And that's when I said, I want to do this. What, what is it called? I oh, know I knew it was called physics because. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And this comes up in the movie also. I was interested in the concept of truth when I went to Greece for the first time. I was age 12. I, I, I was born in Constantinople, but then my family was expelled because they were Greeks. to we go to Greece and we went there. And all of a sudden, it was a free country There was left and right, and I would hear a speech by the left-leaning politician. I said, well, that makes perfect sense. Then I would go to the same topic, a speech from the right-leaning. I said, oh, that makes sense too. But they had opposite conclusions. So I was confused. What does it mean to be true? And then I realized that with language, you can play games, whereas with mathematics, it's such a precise language that uh, you don't play games. If you ask a precise question, you get a precise answer. So I said, I want to do that. And then I was, for about a year, I was wondering if I should do mathematics or physics. And it was that comment by my classmate that, because you can predict precisely what will happen in the future. And then I realized that physics has an advantage over mathematics, that in physics, it's not just the logic and what, you know, two or three mathematicians think or a million mathematicians think. It is nature that goes and tests your theory to see if it's actually realized in nature or not. So that gives an additional, vi- you know foundation to the concept of truth. And I said, ah no, In math there is truth. In physics, it's super true because even nature agrees with you. Mm-hmm. the truth does not depend on the eloquence of the speaker. And in fact, nature can answer what the truth is in physics. So th- those were very attractive ideas for me so i decided to to spend my life on it i'm glad i did
0: so you decided at that stage to spend your life on this and you haven't looked back since
2: no for sure i haven't looked back it's very funny because many of my relatives would tell me you know with your brain you can make a lot of money I say ah, no i don't want money i want time to do what i enjoy doing and uh, they they thought I was a bit strange. But <laughs> but, true, <laughs> but you're still enjoying what you're doing. I'm still enjoying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There is this childlike curiosity and joy that you discover. You know how children they are excited because they discover new things. And in science, there is so many interesting questions that even now there is interesting questions when you understand something you get the joy of understanding, you see connections.
1: Well, Savas, we're delighted that you still enjoy your work and we're very excited that uh, you stopped to chat with us. This has just been fascinating.
2: Thank you, it has been a pleasure for me too.
1: Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of our conversations. We've interviewed so many brilliant scientists whose research spans from the quantum to the cosmos and we can't wait for you to hear more. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review our show on your preferred podcast platform. Great science is for everyone, so please help us spread the word. And thanks for being part of The Equation.